by Robert Levine, the author of a newly updated paperback edition entitled Stranger in the Mirror, The Scientific Search for the Self. Please listen to podcast number 673, where Robert and Greg discuss his new book, Stranger in the Mirror. The book takes on the deeper questions of who we really are, from the perspective of biology, neuroscience, virtual reality, psychology, and many other fields. It does a great job of challenging our assumptions and leaves the reader with questions to ponder and new horizons to explore regarding this thing we call the self. I encourage you to listen to podcast number 673 with Robert Levine about his new book, Stranger in the Mirror. For more information, please visit www.boblevine.net to read his blog and to avail yourself of resources such as videos and articles by Robert. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voisin, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Tim, as I do every time I come on these shows, it's kind of one of my basic introductions. I first have to have tons of gratitude for the thousands of listeners that come back again and again and again to listen to the show, which has been on the air for over 14 years now, approaching 700 podcasts with authors like yourself. And today, Joining me from Minnesota is Tim Burkett, and Tim has a new book out. It's a Shambhala book uh, called Zen in the Age of Anxiety, Wisdom for Navigating Our Modern Times. Tim, good day to you. How are you? I'm fine. I'm glad to be chatting with you, Greg. Well, I'm glad to have you on the show, and I appreciate you taking some of your valuable time to impart some of your wisdom and some of your Zen teachings over the years. What I love to do is I always let the listeners know a little bit about our authors before we begin our interviews. And Tim began practicing Zen Buddhism in San Francisco in 1964 with the renowned teacher. Now, why don't you say his first name? Last name Suzuki. That's easy. What's his first name? Shunryu. Shunryu. Yep. And, And he's the author of Zen Mind, Beginner Mind. After completing a Bachelor of Arts at Stanford University, Tim and his family moved to Minnesota. Uh, Tim's first book, Nothing Holy About It, discusses how Zen's core teachings unfold within the ordinary comedies and tragedies of everyday life. In both his books, as in his life, Tim reveals how to live in the world with the deep joy that comes from embracing the work and play of this very moment. Tim is the former CEO of the largest nonprofit in Minnesota for the mentally impaired and chemically dependent. He's a psychologist, a Zen Buddhist priest, guiding teacher of Minnesota Zen Center, and he and his wife Linda have two grown children and two grandchildren. Well, pleasure to have you on. And obviously the title of this book is very eye-catching, right? Uh, When I went through Shambhala's list of books and people that I wanted to interview, you were definitely one of them. And and the reason is, is really, Tim, because of these challenging times that I think we live in. Not that we haven't been in challenging times before, but I think it's pretty unprecedented. And you quote the song, 
uh, can't get no satisfaction in the opening of your book and this song made the charts in 1965 era uh, with lots of people that were in unrest and dissatisfaction at that time matter of fact the whole hate ashbury area of san francisco now in your estimation how did the times of 65 1965 and what was happening um, echo in society today and what can people do to lessen their anxiety about the really crazy world affairs that we find ourselves in? Oh, yeah. Well, that's a, that's a good two-part question. So similarities and dissimilarities. Well, there does seem to be similarity. similarities and what to do about it. Uh, similarities and dissimilarities and what to do about it. Well, there, yes, there are echoes of the 60s here, and there's the same dividedness in our culture uh, although in the 60s it was there was a counterculture forming and uh, that identified itself as a counterculture and uh, there was a civil rights movement and there was the assassination of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy and and uh, those were divided times um, and we are seem to be in divided times again uh, and I would, I could comment on the similarities and differences, but I do want to comment on the fact that in the '60s, uh, it was not people did not talk about their anxiety, nor was it considered, nor did people consider that by just slowing themselves down internally, just being with their breath, just, just. Uh, meditating in the simplest way possible that they could uh, not be divided inside the way the culture seems to be divided externally again it seems to be again we seem to be in tribes uh, although there's nothing called a counterculture anymore in, in a major sense we are in tribes and when we're in tribes and there's this significant gap between self and other meditation can be so healing and in the 60s it just was considered uh, I, I did it but it was considered very uh, kind of abnormal to do it uh, now we have meditation centers like ours all over the country we have meditation apps so now is a time for people to begin to suture the woundedness they feel from the divide in our society by being quiet with themselves, being still with themselves in, in one form or another. I would say most definitely in meditation and yoga practice and all of the alternative practices that I wouldn't say are as much alternative today, Tim. Um, they're, they're a lot more mainstream, obviously. Now you speak of med meditation, obviously in the book, it's, there's a lot about meditation and meditations that calms and centers your students. Can you frame this meditation, and in this case, the calming and centering meditation, so that my listeners know how to use this during times of anxiety? I think that, you know, look, I'm not gonna point to any administration or create ill on anything, but I think there are people out there that are so divided that it's created such anxiety in their lives it, you hear people speaking about the division around the water cooler and 
I don't think there can be anything more challenging to get people riled up than to have these discussions about what's going on and then, you know, leave there with this tension and anxiety that they have. And you have a calming and centering, you have lots of meditations, but obviously one that calms and centers. You want to speak about that to our listeners? Sure, I'll, I'll speak a little bit, bit about that. Well, my my background, my discipline in the last 50 years of my life has been in different forms of Buddhist meditation, but I don't even care about the term Buddhist. Uh, again, this meditation that, that heals, and there's formal meditation, which I encourage all my students to do every day, where they sit quietly for a few minutes at the same time every day, and they and in formal meditation they can either watch their breathing or follow their breathing or repeat something to themselves when they breathe like deep on the in breath and peace on the out breath or present moment on the in breath and only moment on the out breath or focus on uh, a, a part of their body or their stress uh, which is really bare awareness of sensations, or they could do just a, a, an open-ended meditation where they just sit and don't do anything at all. Just watch their mind, just feel their feelings without getting entangled in them, and begin to notice some space between their thoughts. So there are, there are many techniques, and then there's the just sitting, and then there's the daily life. If you've just been at the cooler, at the water cooler, and had a tense conversation with someone and then you're going back to your desk what can you do do you have a moment can you put your hands on the back of your chair for three minutes and just breathe uh, uh, can you feel the feel the upholstery on the chair and, and breathe and say something to yourself that will help you breathe uh, when it's time for your meal uh, your lunch can you just Spend the first five minutes of your lunch just just chewing your food and all the thoughts as they come through, just letting them come through, but coming back to the taste of your food. So I, I instruct people about how to do both a daily practice at home or at a meditation center, but also how to integrate. Maybe you're driving in the car and someone cuts you off. Um, and you you notice that you're really frustrated that you want to scream at them, uh, and, but instead of that, you notice it. You come back to the feeling of your butt on the on the uh, driver's seat. You you take a few deep breaths. So I many many different ways, but it's all about not being carried away by the future and the past and just dwelling in the present because in the present there is calmness it's just it, it's just the, the anxiety is about what happened before and our projection into the future about what might happen um, and, and of course these are difficult times so we fixate on that stuff but in the present there can always be calmness there can always be openness and, and a sense of contact with whatever activity we're engaged in. Well, and that is the point here is that, you know, learning to live more in the moment. And you tell a very enlightening story about an American who asked the Dalai Lama about the self-hatred he was feeling. 
And you mentioned that the Dalai Lama was quite surprised by the question. As a matter of fact, for all of those listeners, Dalai Lama just had a birthday here about, what, four days ago, was it, Tim? He's 83 years old yeah, now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, I know because my birthday is the 3rd of July. So we have uh-huh. we're two Cancerians uh, working uh-huh. to bring peace to the world. Uh, you mentioned that the Dalai Lama was quite surprised by the question and did not understand the question uh, because he was not familiar with this concept of self-hatred. So the question of unworthiness is a big yes. one. Yes. And, and unworthiness then kind of protracts itself into self-hatred because you don't feel you're worthy so obviously. That's right. You, you That's begin right. to hate yourself. So how would you address this question with our listeners to at least give them some insight on how they might elevate uh, themselves so that they don't feel this unworthiness and self-hatred? Uh-huh. Well, first you've got to get in contact with it, uh, meaning a lot of us don't realize how uh, – I used to talk – so in psychology we talk about the fact that there's an internal parent that tells us what we should do and what we shouldn't do. And, and that internal parent seems to congeal into an internal critic. And that internal critic hardens into an internal tyrant. Well, as long as that internal tyrant is dominating things, and that's what the Dalai Lama didn't get. He didn't get how we've culturally created a situation where so many people are tyrannized by their by their thoughts in a negative way and their and their ideas about themselves so first you have to you have to notice it you have to be aware of it you have to open yourself up to it when when you've done that you can begin to see that it is just a conglomeration of thoughts and feelings it's a very uh obsessive compulsive conglomeration and uh there are different meditations that you can do, loving-kindness meditations, self-compassion meditations, uh, but, you, but you have to have the awareness first, and then you, ha- you can do a, a completely non-judgmental meditation where you just are aware of it and breathe into it until it dissolves. But sometimes that doesn't happen, and sometimes you need to direct compassion to yourself the Dalai Lama also noticed that people have the most difficult time uh, being compassionate toward themselves. And I noticed that too as a teacher. So sometimes with my students, I say, well, if you can't do a loving kindness meditation toward yourself, imagine your pet or your best friend being sitting there with you in your lap and, and give them loving kindness vibes. Say to them, say to your dog, may, may, may you be calm, may you be happy, may you feel loved. And then bring your dog, the image of your dog, right into your lap. And then when you're ready, bring your dog all the way into you. And it seems a little odd, but people often are able to do that with an animal or a human being they feel close to, but not with themselves. And it's just a question of practice. If they could do it with an animal, or with a person they care about, they can do it with themselves, but it's practice, practice, practice. Well, that is meditation. It's practice. Yes. Uh, and, yes. I, and I think uh, I do a class in meditation myself and I'm part of self-realization fellowship. And 
and uh, and we say that it's one of the hardest classes that you can actually take, and that is calming uh -huh. the mind, right? So uh -huh. it doesn't matter if you do a spin class or a yoga class or you do whatever. We'll go into the meditation class for 50 minutes and see how you can calm that mind and see sometimes the monkey mind, how challenging it is. Now, your book, and, Tim. And, it, and, be, and be prepared for the fact that uh, you're going to be surprised at how fast the monkey is dancing because usually if you haven't meditated, you don't realize how out of control the mind is. But if you start to meditate, you that first realization needn't be discouraging. It needn't be discouraging. No, I I would agree. And it, it's, it is allow the, the thoughts to flow and go in and out, right? So yep. now you... You cover a lot of things in this book. You cover the, the Zen perspective on sex, on money. Uh, so let's talk about this for a minute. In this chapter on sex, you discuss how we have swung from this very puritanical heritage to this hypersexual society. Uh, you talk about people, you know, looking at porn on their computers at work and all this kind of stuff. And yet, on the other hand, you give a very balanced approach about the Zen perspective about sex and our and the practice of meditation. Um, if you would reflect on it, because I think that, you know, obviously the monks are celibate, but that isn't what the expectation is for the average person. Um, and so I think maybe there's a bit of misunderstanding about Zen Buddhism and the practices of sex. Yes, and of course, I'm only speaking for myself as a Zen teacher here in the United States. Uh, but I'm also I also do actually quote from the tradition that uh, the Buddhist tradition is mixed. There's celibacy, but there is also joy joy in sexuality. And I I quote the famous Zen poet Ikkyu from uh, so his. Uh, kind of celebratory poems about uh, um, the joy of sex. So the joy of eating, the joy of sex, the joy of enjoying a sunset, the joy of uh, hanging out with your best friend. There's no need to exclude sex from that. And uh, I know this happened in, in many of our traditions. Uh, and of course, uh, many of the meditative traditions too, but I think that happened because if we obsess about anything, uh, it's going to get in the way of our meditation. But there's no need to uh, obsess about sex any more than there is a need to obsess about a good meal that I've had or a beautiful sunset that I've just watched. Uh, uh, so without doing harm to ourselves or others, uh, any of these sensory experiences can help us be more in our moments feel more connected with the world, feel more alive, uh, sexual and non-sexual. So I don't, I just don't uh, put sex on the side. There it is. There it is. Well, I think you give a very balanced perspective about it. And I think that's important for listeners who are going to pick this book up and maybe have a, might have a different expectation. I mean, the book covers a lot of topics around meditation obviously and the zen perspective and another one that you speak about is money 
Um, yeah. You know, yeah. you say in your chapter on money, you stress the more, uh, the more you stress about it doesn't necessarily equate to having more happiness, right? There's a lot of people out there that have a lot of money and you say that research proves that actually having all this money doesn't make you happier. Um, and you speak with us about the concepts of what you call continuous exchange. You even had a discussion about this moneyless society, which people have tried and it's failed. And uh, I think in Denmark and various places around the world. And I do think we are coming to that. I do believe that there is going to be a time when we reach that, but, um, Obviously, money is a big issue. I mean, divorces occur over it. Wars occur because of it. Uh, division of people, people go to court, they fight over it. Um, you know, this power that it has over people is really interesting, and it causes a lot of anxiety. Um, if you would, speak about it a bit, and then possibly some of the meditations that you would recommend to help ease the tensions that people have about the anxiety over money. Uh-huh. Okay, well, uh, first of all, uh, I'm, I'm not a Marxist, but I do say in that book that what Karl Marx said uh, from each according to his ability or her ability, he used the, the male pronoun, to each according to his need, um, uh, feels good to me. And it's very in line with uh, Zen Buddhist tradition that we all have things to give to the world. And uh, uh, we give different things, and we we there needs to be reciprocity in a relationship. And the more reciprocity there is, the the more sense of harmony there is, of of uh, relationship there is. And um, uh, I think the the earliest monastic communities were really built that way. Uh, so, and my teacher Suzuki Roshi said. Uh, money does not belong to the individual. It belongs to society. Well, money is a way in which we symbolize this exchange, this exchange that's always going on when we're giving something to someone and getting back, getting something back. And the problem is that we get attached to the to the symbol, which is the the ten dollars or the million dollars or the uh, and uh, forget that that this exchange is uh, the harmony of all life uh, interacting with each other. Uh, and uh, if we can just appreciate money as exchange, that, that when, we, when we do something, we'll, get, we'll get, get something for it. When we give something, we'll get something. And, and uh, uh, it's true that the utopian societies that have tried to uh, live this way Seem to have all uh, well, they've all failed basically. But they're, they're, Buddha still strives for giving and receiving, receiving and giving, and not monetizing things to the point that we are divided from each other. But but seeing that that monetization as just a, an exchange in, in the way when you. In the old days, when you trade a horse for a cow for two cows, you you just make sure this exchange had some equity to it. Yeah, and I and I think that that's a a, a great perspective. It's obviously a Zen perspective, but I think if more people live their life from that perspective, 
they'd have less anxiety over the giving and receiving of money or the using the money for exchange for something like you're talking about. So it's, it's really an important element. And I would say to my listeners, you know, definitely get Tim's book and read that section on the money because it's a good one. The other one you talk about is failure. You know, we know, and I've had plenty of failures in my life. Uh, I've been a serial entrepreneur and I've had lots of things that have failed. I've had a lot more fail than have actually succeeded. But we're conditioned in our society to believe that it, it is close to the end when we fail, right? We get despondent. Um, people look at us differently. People that go through a bankruptcy or lose a house or whatever it might be, or they lose something in their life that creates this failure. Can you speak about the Zen perspective and how we can fail without what you return, you refer to as the attachment to failure itself? Um, because it really is that attachment that has this deep rooted anxiety for people. And there is no purpose for being attached to it. It's a learning lesson. It's not failure. That's right. That's right. And you know, I, 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 I talk in my book about everybody knows about Michael George's story. It's so well known. And I think many people know that in junior high, he, he shot hoops every day, but he didn't make the junior high team, but he kept shooting hoops. Then in high school, he, he made the JV team and he, and he kind of wanted to uh, give up, uh, but his grandmother encouraged him. She knew he loved to play it. And, uh, and he kept at it over. So how many times did he fail? How many times did he fail over and over again? But he had some love for what he was doing. He had some engagement in, in, in his activity. And and uh, another person is Ernest Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway wrote the last page of The Sun Also Rises. I think I'm trying to remember my quote from the, my book, but I think like 49 times we uh, so each 48 times he failed, but he kept doing it. He kept doing it until it, until it fit, until it worked. This is how we become resilient. This is how our, uh, we're able to actually do anything in life. Uh, we give our things to, or give ourselves to the things we really care about. We do them completely. We fall down, and we learn that we're resilient, that we can bounce back, and that after a while, what, are, what was our great failure is our great success. And our great success actually is developing this resiliency, this brain plasticity, which I talk about in my part of my book, which comes from allowing, doing our best effort at something we really care about, failing, 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 bouncing up, bouncing up until we're, we're, we have a resiliency, a flexibility, that allows us to just enjoy our lives, regardless of what happens, even in this age of anxiety. Yeah, and I think it's important that you stress you stress to the listeners about resiliency, um, and especially when, no matter what you're doing, whether it's if at school you fail at something or you fail someplace else in life, uh, you need to have this ability to be resilient and bounce back and try again and again and again. I happened to see a show last night about Andrea Bocelli. And wow. if, if anybody ever watched the show, you would wonder how he ever made it to be 
the amazing singer he was from a, a young child being blind, being rejected, 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 and finally getting a break after all that rejection. It was a phenomenal story. Um, but the reality is it finally made it to that point where he was recognized and was singing on big stages. But, you know, one of the things, and I want to kind of wrap our interview up on this, um, Suzuki Roshi, who is is your Zen master, you speak about humility. And I think humility is a big one. It's a perspective of humility and self-respect. And he says, when you do something without thinking about doing something that is self-respect, the true self-respect is bigger than that. It is bigger than the small self that is always seeking respect. Um, if you would comment with our listeners about the importance of living life with humility, especially that way, whether you're a father or a mother or a teacher or a coach, humility is really, really a very, very important element to practice. That's right. And of course, it, it's a segue from, from my chapter on failure for me to talk, as I, for me to talk about humility, because if we if we learn to fail, if we learn to fail well and get back up and fail again well and get back up, we we feel closer to the earth. We feel closer to to others, and we develop a natural humility, not the humility that comes from trying to be religious or spiritual or or live up to some ideal, but the humility that comes from us wanting to be intimate with the world around us, feel a deep connection. And the more we allow ourselves to fall down and get up and do it with some some lightness, uh, knowing that there will always be another chance. Uh, I talk in my story about my, in my book, about my teacher playing tennis. Uh, once uh, he was a little Japanese man, and I once he was going out instead of in, in his black robes he had a he had a tennis hat on and white shorts and i said where are you going he said i'm going to play tennis with betty and betty was a woman in our sangha that's our meditative community who had depression and so she wasn't able to sit with us for this time she was in deep depression but she played tennis and i said oh, i thought you didn't play tennis and i didn't i didn't i said i didn't think you knew how to play tennis he said oh, i don't know but betty knows so then I accompanied him, I watched him, and he was just falling all over the place. But he was having a good time. He, he, he kept falling down and getting up and laughing. And after 20, 25 minutes, uh, he, was, he hit the ball back a couple of times, and they probably only played for a half an hour. But that was some sort of natural humility. It wasn't something where he was trying to be humble. He was just embracing the moment, being with his his friend and student who was depressed and and being willing to fail at, at what he was doing completely and even laughing about it. So if we can laugh about failure, we can um, really enjoy our lives and not be just uh, frozen in anxiety, regardless of, of what's happening politically or economically or socially. Well, it's a great place for us to kind of end this interview. And Tim, I so appreciate you being on Inside Personal Growth. 
Um, for my listeners, this book is, is, it, is at Amazon, it, and there'll be a link to that as well. The book is titled Zen in the Age of Anxiety, Wisdom for Navigating the Modern Times. Um, we've been on with Tim Burkett, and Tim is the author of this book, and it was edited by Wanda Isle, is it? Um, yep. So yep. a great a great book, an easy read, very easy to understand. Um, for people that are diving into this for the first time and want to have some understanding about how Zen, Zen practices, meditation practices would calm their mind, make them better able to deal and cope with the stresses of the world that we live in today. Tim's book, I highly recommend it. And Tim, is there a website or someplace you would like to direct the listeners to um, with relation to getting more information or how would you like to do that? Uh, yes, well, they can go to, uh, 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 they can listen to my talks by going to the Minnesota Zen Meditation Center website, Minnesota Zen Meditation Center. I have talks, I have a blog um, uh, there, and I'm going to have my own website soon, but I, I don't have that set up yet. But the Minnesota Zen Meditation Center talks, blog, uh list of readings etc so we will put wonderful. a link to that tim uh in the blog entry at our website so that our listeners know to go there uh, that would be wonderful oh most definitely we'll do that we'll put a link there so people then can get to that um and it will also put any links to, if you've got facebook pages or any social media pages you yeah, want we, so we also have a we have a facebook page with the minnesota's on meditation center too yeah sure We'll get that out to all of our listeners. And Tim, thank you for being on. I appreciate you spending the time with me uh, to discuss your new book called Zen in the Zen in the Age of Anxiety: Wisdom for Navigating Our Times. Thank you so much, Greg. It was a great pleasure, and I hope you're enjoying your San Diego summer out there. Thank you. 